does the Bible teach us about sex and sexuality? Why is it such a difficult conversation? How can we take a faithful and grace-filled approach? Find answers to these questions and more in this week's Zonecast. You're listening to The Zonecast, alive in the Word. Hello and welcome to the podcast where we dig deep into God's Word each week as we seek to know Jesus better and follow Him more closely. My name's Mark Hurst, I am pastor of Willsborough Baptist Church in Ashford, Kent and I'm hosting the show. In case you were wondering, the zone in Zonecast is the New Testament Greek word for alive or living and we believe God's Word is living and active and we seek to make it so in our lives today. Now, on last week's show, we had Phil Fellows share with us some of his testimony, how he went from being a barrister to a Baptist minister, and how his experience has shaped his abilities to read arguments in Paul. Phil shared with us some amazing advice on how to read Paul generally, how to read challenging passages in New Testament letters, and he got us off to an amazing start examining this particularly challenging passage in Romans, chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. Thank you to everyone who got in touch. So many people commented on how they found Phil's approach refreshing and helpful and how it's helped them to read scripture. If you found it helpful, there's good news. Today, we're going to be picking up that interview again and bringing you part two with Phil. To recap, Phil Fellows is Minister of Hersham Baptist Church. He is a writer and he has a blog called Living Word. The link's in the show notes. And he's presently engaged in postgraduate studies at Cliff College, specialising in John Wesley and charismatic and Pentecostal theology. And Phil is a brilliant teacher and communicator. If you didn't catch part one in last week's show, we really recommend you listen to it first for context, because we're going to be joining that interview mid-flow, as it were. And I should say that this is a challenging passage, and for some it may raise significant pastoral concerns. And please do follow up if you need to with a trusted Christian pastor, minister, or wise Christian friend. You may have guessed already, but the topic of sex and sexuality features prominently in today's episode. And we're seeking to be faithful to what scripture says. But if you have questions or you think differently to us on anything presented today, we'd love to hear from you. But that's more than enough by way of introduction. Let's get straight back into that interview with Phil. Now, Phil, you've written quite extensively about sex and sexuality from a biblical perspective in your blog, Living Word. And while we've already discussed that sex is by no means the focus of what Paul's writing about here, Verses 26 and 27 tend to be what people today can focus on and maybe latch on to. Can you explain to us what Paul is saying in these verses and maybe set it in place for us within the wider picture of what faithful sexuality looks like from a biblical perspective? Yeah, so I, I have, I've written, I've, I've, written ext- I've written extensively about this. And um, although I wouldn't recommend that people start with my writing, if you want to get into this... Um, the best uh, resource is uh, called uh, Better Story. I can't remember by who, whom it's by now. I will find out and then we'll put it in the uh, show notes perhaps. But um, it is uh, Glenn Harrison, who is, who is a former professor of psychology at University of Bristol. So he knows his stuff. And he's talking about how um, Christians can remain biblically folk- faithful and engage with uh, Paul's teaching about sex and sexuality and do it in a way that actually narrates the great story of what God's design is for human sex and sexuality. 
Um, I, I think so. We need to we need to we need to do a couple of things as we're digging into these verses. Uh, and I want to stress that what we're doing now is theology. Uh, I would I want to address in a minute, and I know we've talked about addressing in a minute the the way that we handle these texts in public and the way that we talk about stuff and present these things, particularly to those who are not immersed in the Christian story. So, and I want to come on to that in a minute. And I also want to talk about pastorally, how do we handle somebody who is, who is struggling with these? And if you are listening to this today and you're struggling with these, then uh, I'll, I'll, I'm directly going to speak um, to your situation in a moment. But it is important before we dive into that, that we do do the hard theoretical work of understanding God's word and understanding theology so that we know what we're talking about before we do that. And so I'm going to be quite um, analytical and quite cold in the way I talk about these things, not because I don't realise that they're emotive and they are things that people really struggle with, but because if we're actually going to give answers that are truthful and helpful, we have to do the cold, rational work first before we then work out how it speaks to us. What Paul is saying here is a clear and explicit and unequivocal um, statement that practising sexual acts between people of the same gender or sex, biological sex, is uh, not what God wants. I want to be as clear as I can about that. There really isn't when you dig into the texts. And you can dig into the mainstream commentaries on this, whether it's Doug Moose or Ben Witherington's or uh, uh, Hayes's uh, Ethics of the New Testament, and dig into what serious Greek and New Testament scholars have found when they've analysed these passages and analysed the proper contexts. There really isn't any, any room for escaping the fact that Paul does say that men practising sexual activity with men and women practising sexual activity with women is not what God wants for human beings. And I want to be as as clear as I can about that. Now, I want you to notice that I have not said anything about people who experience attraction to other people of the same gender or the same sex as them. Uh, We all experience um, feelings and emotions all the time and we choose whether to act on them or not. And I don't think Paul is addressing here how we experience ourselves. And we can talk about that in a minute, in, in a minute if we want to. And actually, Paul in Romans 7 and Romans 8 talks about actually God's desire to change the whole way that we think about everything uh, in order that we might be led by the Holy Spirit. But I think we do need to be clear that he is talking about acts. He's talking about acts and he says those acts are not permissible for Christians. They're not what God wants for Christians. Why then does he say this? Is is God's answer on these things simply a no? And God is a killjoy who has no conception of sex except some sort of 1950s sitcom. Well, if we dig back deeper into the biblical story, what we see is that God's design for sex is actually far richer and more wholesome and more in, a, in, a, in the sense of making us whole and more fulfilling and more beautiful than our contemporary culture allows for. So our contemporary culture holds that sex has no purpose except for expressing as a physical expression of the desire that two people have for one another. It is, to use a colloquialism, simply a way of getting one's rocks off with another person. And that is so far short 
of what God's understanding is of sex, that we are almost not talking about the same thing. As we unpick the biblical story of sex, what we can see is that God has designed this to have a multi-dimensional aspect. It's designed for reproduction. It's part of what God has designed humanity to do, to go and to fill the earth with his image. And therefore, he has chosen this way of us reproducing with one another. He's chosen that men and women would be designed to fit together and that therefore they would be designed to produce new life. And actually, that's that's obviously true. I mean, I'm involved in teaching in primary schools. This is obviously true. When you teach children sex education, we spend the first half of the time uh, teaching them what the biological function of their bodies is. That men produce seed and that in the sex act, women are designed to receive that seed and that that in turn produces new life. Right? It's part of God's design for creation that these things should be uh, life producing. It's designed to cement relationships. That's why the biblical, the Old Testament euphemism for sexual intercourse is knowing. Because it's in those moments when we, we, we are uh, uh, most intimate with one another that we most know the other person. We're most vulnerable. I'm not going to go into details, but there's never a moment in your relationship with your wife in which you are more vulnerable to another person than, than, than in, in sex. Right? For obvious reasons. There's precious little room for defending yourself. Right? It's, it's, it's a moment of complete vulnerability and therefore it needs to be a moment of complete trust. That's why it's put in the, in the context of a, of a total commitment to the other's good. That's what marriage is. Marriage is a promise that we will be committed to another's good and that we will seek their good for the rest of our lives. And therefore, because they can trust me that I've said that, they are able to be completely vulnerable with me and I with them. It's a cement that, that joins people together and so on and so on. These are, these are all wonderful pictures of, of what sex is designed to do. It's designed to bring joy and hope and, and reproduction and children and all of these things. We want to say God is saying enough, a, a massive yes to all of these things and yet he wants to say no. Therefore, to us using this thing that he's given us, this wonderful gift that he's given us in a way that's not going to promote our welfare and our well-being. And actually part of the, the difficulty, the ethical difficulty with uh, same-sex relationships is that they don't fulfil these criteria. They're not even capable of fulfilling these criteria. Now, there are all sorts of questions that come into that about children, couples that are infertile and stuff. And, and I address these on my blog and you can dig into that if you want to. But but I really do want to say that this is, this is not God's prudishness. It is part of God's wonderful, joyful, created design for us. Now, why is it that these verses in particular stand out to us as causing us enormous trouble? Because we have to recognise that for 1800, 1900 years of the church's life, in fact, right up until about 40 years ago, even 20 years ago, these verses caused no problems for people whatsoever. They were just obvious to us, obvious to people. In fact, they stumbled over the following verses, 28 through to 32. And they might be having the same conversation about those verses as we're having about uh, the question of same-sex um, intercourse. Why is it that we find these verses so difficult? Well, it's, I want to suggest it's actually because we have a warped view of sex in our culture. I've touched on this already. We make sex far too important, and at the same time, we make it far too little, of far too little importance. So we make sex of far too important, 
far, far, far too great an importance because we say that expressing my own sexual desire is the high point of human existence. You even have people, and this is, again, part of the lawyer thing, there are people who mount serious arguments in court that for them to be denied sex because they can't find a, a willing sexual partner is a breach of their human rights. Right? And that tends to be scoffed at, but actually it's a, it is a, a continuation of our society's view that sexual self-expression is the teleos, the aim of the human life. Right? Interesting, when we come back to... Uh, come back to Paul's description, they exchange the glory of God for another created thing. We live in a society and in an age that has exchanged the worship of God for the worship of sexual self-expression. It dates back to Freud and uh, Foucault and others, that, that, that we regard that as, imp as, as of central importance. And you can see this in the way that people treat others when they are talking about their own sexual self-expression. So, for example, uh, a prominent TV personality came out as experiencing same-sex attraction in the UK recently, and I'm, I'm not commenting on his case particularly, but it was so much as the reaction to it. What was interesting in the reaction is that this man was, is married, he has a wife, he has children, he has somebody to whom he's made commitments of fidelity, and yet when he was talking on TV with his co-hosts and other, and other presenters, the clear impression that they were giving was that the single most important thing he had to do was to be true to himself and find, sec and se find sexual self-expression according to his own desires. Now, I'm not seeing a judgment on him at all, right? He is no worse or better than me. In fact, I'm, I'm he may well be a, a much nicer guy than I am. What I am saying is that we can see that, that in their reaction the thing that they valued most was the idea that I am true to myself and I express myself in the way that I desire with whomever I desire. So, I mean, again, we can remove this from the idea of same-sex attraction and come into the area of divorce. Is it ever permissible for a Christian to have an affair? No, I would say. A absolutely not. Because it's, you've, made a, you've made a commitment, you've made a covenant with your partner, you are totally committed to them, that is most important. That is what's priority. You've given your word. And God is a God of faithfulness. He expects us to keep our word. And yet our society's uh, attitude to divorce, and it comes through in the various media contents we have, is that if you find somebody else with whom you have a better connection, in the end, you, you, in the end you have to be true to yourself. And being true, if being true to yourself means leaving your husband or your wife and going off with somebody else and finding happiness with them, that is the most important thing. And actually, that then feeds into the way we talk about everything else. So what about children? Well, isn't it more important for children to have a mummy or a daddy who's fulfilled and happy and with their new partner than it was for them to have one who was sort of struggling to make marriage work with the old partner? And the biblical answer is no, absolutely not. What's most important for them is to have parents who are keeping their promises to one another, working at loving one another and, and seeking to love them and love God. The, the sexual fulfilment of mummy and daddy is of no consequence to the children whatsoever. And yet we tell ourselves this lie. Again, we, we come back to they exchanged the glory of God for the worship of a created thing. It's clear, isn't it, Phil, that society's view of sex, sexuality, even ourselves for that matter, is broken. Um, in fact, I think in this area, we are all broken and in need of redemption, just like every other area of our lives from what you've been saying. You know, as you said, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And at some point or another, our view of sex has not matched up to God's. And that can be proven by our relationship with our spouse, our thought life, our internet browsing history, perhaps, or indeed our actions. So how do we talk about this issue from a pastoral perspective? Indeed, how do we helpfully teach on this when there are so many conflicting worldviews and personal experiences that people have had, some harmful, some painful? What's your approach? Yeah. How do we work through this? Well, if you're preaching on chapters like this, the first thing you have to recognise is that you can't just dive into the text and assume that everyone else has the background. Actually, there are a lot of Christians who don't understand the Bible's teaching about sexual ethics. I don't mean even older Christians. I'm not just talking about young Christians. Older Christians understand the rules, but they don't understand the why behind the rules. They might understand that adultery is bad, but if you press them to say, why is adultery bad? Why does it breach what God designed sex to be? Well, God designed sex to be a, a commitment, a cement that binds people together and holds them together. And so you can see that breaching that, breaking that, is breaking what God wants for it. And you say God designed sex to be a reproductive and to be enjoyed in a way that, that actually brings fruitfulness and wholeness to human pairs and couples and designed sex to be complementary and, and that having sexual relations with someone of the same gender as you doesn't fulfil any of that. You start to unpack the bigger story. So if you're preaching these things, you need to take time to, to lay the groundwork of God's good design for human sexuality and sexual ethics to give people a, a different framework, to, in Glenn Harrison's language, to tell them a better story, one of commitment and fruitfulness and joy. If you're somebody who's struggling with these things, what you need to hear is that Jesus Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. That actually each one of us has to learn to repent. Each one of us is called to repent of different things. And, and Paul is not wrong to isolate sex from everything else, actually, because sex is, can be the area that we struggle the most with. Because it, it does express, you know, the sex drive is a powerful thing. But, but if you're struggling with this, the first thing you need to hear is that God loves you and that his son came for you and that he des desires you. And that you are, if you are struggling, then, then Jesus Christ is walking with you and he wants to, to, to be with you and to, to redeem you. And if you slip up and you fall, then at any point he will redeem you and hold you and save you. And, 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 and that you are welcome in our churches. You are welcome to follow Christ. You're welcome to come as you are. But just like everyone else, you're not welcome to stay as you are. And, and, and you need to hear that affirmation of your dignity and your human personhood, whilst also the gentle but firm comment that actually there are ways that God has designed us to behave and that we're not permitted to behave in those ways just because we really, really want to. You know, just because we really, really want to is not a, is not a good answer. Right? Each one of us is called to repent in different areas. If you're a Christian and you have uh, friends or church members who are wrestling with same-sex attraction and who uh, occasionally or at times slip up in this area, I want to say to you, that person is no different from you. Your brother or sister is no different from you. If you, are, if you are a Christian who does not experience same-sex attraction and you are tempted to view your, your brother or sister as somehow involved in a category of human struggle that is different from yours in nature or kind, 
or degree, then you need to hear the words of uh, Romans 2 verse 1. Who are you, O man or woman, to condemn anyone else? Get alongside them. Be their friend. They're struggling. Love them. And listen to God's call, which is none of us are, are permitted to stay as we are. Each one of us is called to repent and believe the good news. If you are, and if you are a progressive Christian, I do want to just challenge you on this, which is the call of Peter and the call of Jesus and the call of John the Baptist is to repent. And I, I have a, a the, the word repentance necessarily implies that there are different aspects of each one of our lives that are part of who we are naturally that are not what God wants for us. If there weren't, we wouldn't be called to repent. I am naturally a greedy and angry man. I struggle with greed and I struggle with anger. I struggle with pride. And it's no good me coming along saying, well, this is in my nature and therefore it's fine. It is in my nature and it's not fine. I have to repent. Each one of us has to repent. And I've been involved in conversations with our Baptist brothers and sisters and pastors where it's become obvious as the conversation goes on that what they are really struggling with, my liberal Baptist uh, friends who are, who are pastors, is the concept that anyone is called to repent. And, and we do need both of those things. We need to say that actually everyone is welcome as they are. Christ came into the world to save sinners. But no one is permitted to remain as they are. Christ came into the world to call all men to repentance, or to use his words, to call sinners to repentance. We can't, on the one hand, say Jesus dined with the prostitutes, which is absolutely true, without, on the other hand, saying, and he called them to repent. And the voices in our church that deny either of those positions have no business preaching the gospel because it's not the gospel they're preaching. Yeah, those insights, Phil, are so honest and gracious. We, we looked in the first week at Paul's unequivocal statement that this gospel is for all, for everyone. Yeah. And in the same way, he is also unequivocal about the need for all to repent. Yeah. Indeed, it is clear from his writing, isn't it, to the church in, in such places such as Corinth that these new communities embrace people from every imaginable background, sexual or otherwise. And yes. many still struggle with aspects of their old life, as we all do, but they're on a journey of transformation because everything is headed uh, towards new creation. Yeah. You know, there's no aspect of our lives that's not in need of being transformed by the gospel, and that certainly includes our sexuality. Yeah. But it's not the be-all and end-all, right? Paul was not involved in a sexual relationship, right? Jesus wasn't, right? The big lie of our culture, one of the big lies of our culture, is that the only path to human flourishing and fulfilment is sexual self-expression. It's just bunk, right? It's just not... And actually, everyone knows that, right? Statistically, people are having less sex now than they have at any other point in the last 50 years, which I find striking given the amount of time and effort we spent talking about it. Right? It's like that old wives' tale, the empty vessels make the most noise. Right? The culture in human history which has spent the most time talking about sex is the one that has the least amount of sex. Why? Oh, well, I can only speculate, but I assume it's because we've broken down the, the bounds of trust that are actually necessary for sexual self-expression to happen. But... Paul and Jesus were not involved in sexual relationships for significant parts of their lives. Jesus, for any of his life, as far as we know, and Paul, certainly for this period of his life, 
He was single. And actually, he flourished. He had an amazing life. He changed the world. He was filled with joy. Paul says in Romans, in, sorry, Philippians, I have learned the secret of being content in every circumstance. Unbelievable. The man's life was filled with joy and purpose and he was not sexually active. Right? If, if, for, if for a season of your life you're called to be celibate, to abstain from sexual activity, whether you're, whether you're um, a straight person and you haven't found a partner to whom you can commit for the rest of your life, or you're someone who's not found someone who, who's, or you're somebody who's experiencing attraction to the opposite sex and you know that's not what God desires for us, then your life could be full of flourishing. It's not going to be easy. But actually, he's designed you, and in Jesus Christ, he can fulfil you and free you from this, uh, free you from any sense of emptiness or, or, or hopelessness, and give you a fulfilment and a joy that comes from something much better than sex. And if you're a straight person, you're someone who, do, who experiences opposite sex attraction, you're married, and you are really functionally relying on sex to give you identity and fulfilment, you are going to end up empty and sad. Right, because it's not capable of that. You, you, you're functionally living like you're in Romans 1, 26 and 27, even though you're sleeping with a woman as a man or a man as a woman. Right, we can be in this situation and be sleeping with someone of the opposite gender if we're looking to that person to be our God. If we're looking to this, this, this thing that God has created, this good gift, to replace the giver. Yeah, I think there's something about the fact that in our society we've given sex such a high place, as we were talking about earlier, um, that we've almost delegitimized the notion of celibacy um, because there's such an emphasis on the need for sexual fulfillment uh, that it seems um, it seems unreasonable to even suggest that celibacy is an option. It's like we've taken it off the table even in the church. And I think if we're not careful also when it comes to discipleship that, um, you know, people almost ring fence that area of their life it's like you can challenge me on any other area of my life and my identity but um but when it comes to my sexuality you can't go there yeah that's like a, a sacred space that can't be touched i want i want to just i'll just pull you up on that i'll pull you up on a, a comment that you made there mark you said that part of my identity our our culture is obsessed with identity right it's not really a biblical category nowhere in the world before the 19th century would they really have understood it as an idea Right. We think that these things are essential to what makes us human and they're not. Right. And, and 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 that is obvious from the way people actually live, which is that if sexual self-expression is essential to what makes you human, then most people are living as subhumans at the moment. And that's obviously nonsense. Right. But we tell ourselves this story. And the story, we've got to call it out. The story is nonsense. Right? There is no such thing as my identity as X or Y. You know, I, even I even feel uncomfortable with people using the phrase my identity in Christ because I don't really see it in the scriptures. I am a child of God. I am redeemed. I am beloved. But I'm far, I, I am a rich, multifaceted person. I'm far more than just one or two aspects of my emotions at any particular time. Sexual desire doesn't determine identity. It's, it's time that we stop colluding with saying that it does any more than desire for anything else determines identity. Yeah, Phil, that's a really important point. And, you know, I think people make sexuality the focus of their identity because of this unhealthy emphasis that we place on sex. We've already spoken about that. 
but if we're not careful, the church can mirror that, can't we? By seeing this sexual problem in society and indeed experiencing it ourselves, if we're honest, and then pushing sexual sin up this imagined hierarchy of sin that doesn't exist in Scripture, you know, probably linked to the, the shame we feel at times ourselves. I mean, how do we helpfully apply these verses from Romans in our lives? C.S. Lewis is very helpful on this. In his book, um, Surprised by Joy, he comments that uh, he, he's not particularly concerned with uh, the... He doesn't talk for a long time about the uh, same-sex uh, sexual practices that were going on at his boarding school, right? And he says some people will have a go at him for not spending more time commenting on that. He says, that's not, he says a really revealing thing, which I think is a very mature attitude towards sin, which is... This is not something that I've ever struggled with. I don't know exactly what it's like to struggle with it. And therefore, I am not spending as much time talking about the things I haven't experienced as I am talking about the things I have. And for 90% of people listening to this, 95% of people listening to this, the things that they will struggle with are Romans 1 verses 29 to 31. Right? Uh, All manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, the gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. If you're not someone who struggles with um, attraction to somebody else of the same sex or same gender as you, I want to suggest that you spend next to no time meditating on verses 26 and 27 and spend almost all your time pondering verses 28 to 30. Because we should focus on the things that we are struggling with. Now, teachers in the church obviously need to be able to address pastoral situations. But as ordinary Christian believers, don't spend your time focusing on the things Paul talks about that you don't struggle with. Spend your time thinking about and pondering and asking God about the things that you, you think might be true of you. So if you're listening to this and you came to Romans 1, 18 to 30, wanting to hear us talk about same-sex attraction, then great, you've heard us talk about it for a long time. How are you doing with your covetousness? Listener, I'm talking to you now, directly to you. How are you doing with your relationship with your parents? Do you invent things about your friends? Do you find that you're envying your neighbour because he's bought a better car than you have or she's got a nicer house or their children are better behaved than yours? Do you cause strife in your friendship groups? Are you heartless? That's an interesting one. Is your heart animated with compassion when you see those in need? Think about these things. And and, and ask God, I want to recommend for each one of the people listening to this, that you spend 20 minutes this afternoon or this evening going through those two verses in 29 and 30 in a good translation. Get an NIV, it's easy to read for everyone. and Work through it and say, God, how am I doing? Because this isn't supposed to be an intellectual exercise. This is supposed to bring us closer to Jesus. And actually, if you are struggling with saying unkind things about your friends, God wants you to stop. And he wants to change you so that your words build them up. If you're ruthless, if your husband or your 
wife or yourself are in business and you are ruthless. Paul talks about that in the same breath as murder. Think about that. Ponder that. There's no place for these things in the Christian life. We're supposed to be filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Think about that. And ask God, what is it that I am struggling with? Change me. Yeah, Phil, quite rightly, you call us back to consider the challenge that this passage poses to each one of us and to reflect on our own hearts and our own lives. And as we do that and as we wrestle with that challenge, we need that grace, don't we, that we find in Jesus Christ that, as you said, um, welcomes us as we are, but certainly doesn't welcome us to stay as we are, but to be transformed. And I wonder, would you, um, would you pray for us as we consider that and as we ask God to help us with it? Yeah. Yeah, Father, we want to come to you and we want to ask that your Holy Spirit would fill us. Lord, we know that these things can't be changed from the inside out. Lord, these are difficult things. We want to pray forgiveness, Lord, for those of us who are in church leadership, where we have been willing to condemn others uh, and, and scapegoat people, particularly our brothers and sisters and our friends who experience attraction to people of the same sex or same gender. We want to ask forgiveness for the way that we've treated them. We want to acknowledge that we have been exactly those in Romans 2 verse 1 who judge others whilst not judging ourselves. And we want to pray that you'd forgive us and that they would forgive us. Lord, we want to pray for those who are struggling with this at the moment, that you would give them such an understanding of your gracious and your glorious and your life-giving and your hope-giving good news in Jesus, of the life that you want for them in Jesus, Lord, that they would find fulfilment and joy in you. Lord, that anyone who's struggling with this, who wants to follow Jesus with their life, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would make it possible for them, that you put them in good relationships, in good churches. Lord, that you give them peace, that they would know they're forgiven, Lord, that they would know that their shame and their guilt has been cleansed. And Lord, we want to pray for the rest of us, Lord, who are struggling with these other things. Lord, we pray for those who are struggling with um, being jealous and covetous. Lord, we want to pray. We're so sorry, Lord, for when we speak with malice, when we speak with envy and murder when we speak with strife, when we say things that are not true, when we are haughty, Lord, when we boast, Lord, when we dishonour and disobey our parents, when we're foolish, Lord, distorted relationship with you. And we want to pray that above all, that you would come and be the centre of our lives. Lord, that you would forgive us and the Lord Jesus Christ would so overwhelm our minds and our hearts that he would transform us and, Lord, make us into his beautiful and beloved children. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill each one of us today. Come, Lord Jesus and lead us and guide us and make us the children of God that we are called to be in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Phil, thank you so much. Uh, You've helped us to better understand Paul and and get to grips with a challenging passage and you've done so engagingly with grace and humility and I have certainly hugely appreciated all that you've shared. Really hope that you'll come back again soon on the show. Sure, you can give me an easier passage next time and I won't talk for as long. Hey, we've loved every minute. Anyway, um, we'll save Romans 11 for you. How about that? Um, But until then, uh, take care, Phil. Thank you. Bye-bye. What a great interview with Phil. Thank you so much to those who got in touch to say how much they appreciated Phil's skill at unpacking Paul. There were many of you, and we will be sure, as we said, to invite him back. 
we, we had a question from one of our listeners relating to the interview a couple of weeks back with Gareth, where we looked at the first half of Romans 1, asking, what do we mean when we spoke about an apostolic church? It was a phrase we used, but admittedly, we didn't really unpack it much. And of course, I can't speak for Gareth. I think this term, though, generally has been used to refer to a church that is rooted in apostolic teaching from the New Testament and therefore in the succession of the apostles, although that's a contentious phrase which I use carefully. I'm thinking here of the Nicene Creed where there's this affirmation of a belief in one holy Catholic in a sense of universal and apostolic church. However, I think in the interview with Gareth, we were speaking more specifically, too, about a church that embraces the apostolic call. So we said that apostello is this Greek word which means to send. And there's an understanding that we are a sent people, sent to proclaim the good news and to advance the kingdom of God. And also that we are a sending people that we take part in the apostolic call to make disciples of all nations. So we send people out on mission. Uh, That might be down the road. That might be to the other side of the world. And that also means in order to do this, we embrace the apostolic gift spoken of in Ephesians 4, um, which is given in order to equip people for works of service and to see people released in their gifts and so that the church ultimately grows to maturity. Often I've heard people take this further and think of churches that are involved in seeing other churches planted and gospel communities established, which would certainly be a great example of this apostolic call. So I hope that is kind of helpful in brief, just sketching out what we mean by an apostolic church. And please do um, get in touch if you have any other questions. I'm sure there'll be questions raised by the content of today's show, and we'd love to engage in those with you. As I said from the outset, too, if this show has raised any pastoral issues for you, please do speak to a trusted Christian leader or friend. But we'll be going to be taking a break from recording this week, which means that next week there will not be a Zonecast, but we will be back the following week to explore Romans 2. So please stay in touch in the meantime. You know, if you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe and you can help us to increase the reach of the show by rating and reviewing the show in your podcast provider and engaging with our Facebook page. And thank you so much to those that have already left reviews. If you want to get in touch, you can email me at mark at thezonecast.com. That's zone without an E. But all that remains to be said is see you in a couple of weeks. And in the meantime, may the word of God dwell in you richly. Goodbye. You've been listening to The Zonecast, brought to you by Willsboro Baptist Church, Ashford. For more information or to get in contact, find us on Facebook at The Zonecast or visit www.willsborobaptist.church.